The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. Uh, I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my uh, colleague, Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Delane Easton. Uh, long background in education, twice elected state superintendent of public instruction, former chair of assembly education, and no, numerous other honors. Delane, thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. So we want to ask you, as we were just chatting, wanted to ask you about a couple topics. First, you're running for chair of the Democratic Party, um, the California Democratic Party. Uh, why are you doing that? And why do you want to subject yourself to such a punishment by doing that? Well, the short answer is there's insanity in my family, but uh, <laughs> the, truth, the truth be known, I really do believe that I had a pretty wonderful life. And one of the reasons that it was so good for me was my engagement with the Democratic Party. I learned a whole host of skills there and uh, helping in, uh, I was really just trying to teach political science, trying to get a full-time job at a community college. And I got engaged and involved and I met all these fabulous people and learned a huge number of things and eventually became a planning commissioner and a local party officer and uh, then went on to be on the city council and went to the legislature and finally became superintendent. But all along the way, the party really held, uh, you know, my hand and helped me to develop a set of values about progressive issues that I really do believe the state and uh, our country need to pay a lot more attention to. And education, of course, is my wheelhouse, but uh, I, and I do think we have fallen down uh, as a state and as a nation, and we need to get it back up. Uh, we were fifth of the 50 states when I graduated from high school, and in per-pupil spending, we were tied with New York, and tonight we're 21st. New York spends almost twice per student what we're spending. They're number one. So we've, we're living in the most expensive state in the union, and we are number one in something per prisoner expenditure. So I, budgets are statements of values, and I want to see the values of the Democratic Party reflect the values of the people that live in the state. And that's it, education, not only K-12, but child development and preschool. It's also higher education. It's gotten way too expensive for these students. Uh, we need to be invested in the environment big time, and we need a full court press to get rid of fracking in the state of California, as well as to do a lot more to clean up uh, our old forests and and to imagine a future where we do in fact protect our groundwater and uh, civil rights and civil liberties need to be strengthened in the state. We need to make sure that in fact there's civil justice and, uh, and, and on and on. So the party um, had a predator as, at its helm and thank God they got rid of him, but there were too many people that knew he was a predator who allowed him to go into that post, it was a mistake. And uh, now the party needs to be a lot more on its toes. We lost four congressional seats to the Republicans. That's a third of the losses in the nation. So the party needs to be on the ground, much more organized and uh, much more nimble about uh, not only winning back those seats, but getting more engaged in nonpartisan local elections. You think and, that uh, losing the fact, the, you think losing the four seats uh, was a function of district by district politics, local politics, or was there a role the state party should have played or could have played in those races? The state party could have played and should have played a bigger role. The fact is that they were involved in 
gained the seven seats in 2018. They took full credit for that. But then they kind of point fingers at somebody else when they talk about the losses uh, in 2020. We took this state by 10 points for Biden and Harris. So for us to have lost four congressional seats and the party chair was doing fundraising for out-of-state races and was also doing phone calling in out-of-state Democratic races. Charity begins at home. The, uh, the party very definitely is uh, focused or, or dominated in large range by organized labor. And um, of course, Rusty Hicks, the, the president of the party, and there are union organizers, labor organizers, which is a good thing for Democrats. But my question is, does that make it harder for you with an education perspective to come in uh, and confront an organized labor perspective that's entrenched there? Well, my father was the shop steward for the machinists and my grandfather was a teamster back when they drove teams of horses. So uh, delivering bread in San Francisco. So I was a member of CFT. I do think uh, the current chair has a bit of an advantage by being connected to the labor more, much more closely right now than I am. But having said that, uh, labor's footprint has actually been shrinking. Fewer people are in organized labor than used to be. And we need to do a better job of just making this a party uh, that embraces a lot more issues. Uh, Medicare for all. Uh, you know, we we are not moving the needle enough. And you had on NPR last week uh, a story about a man who was working full time and hadn't been to the doctor in 18 years. This, the rest of the first world, uh, almost all of Europe and Japan, they provide their people with uh, medical care uh, as a matter of right. And so it hasn't bankrupted us to have Social Security and Medicare for the old. Why would it bankrupt us have a plan to uh, provide it to everyone else? And I just, when I, I, I've met people in my life, you all have too, who got terribly sick, much sicker than they ever should have gotten because they didn't see a doctor in time. This is not smart. And those of you who've traveled and have ever gotten sick in another country know that if it's a first world country, you get great service and great care. And uh, one, one of my friends had to buy a bathrobe but literally another friend, I think spent $3 on, on medical care when she got sick and, and went, was hospitalized. I just so, take my bathrooms from hotel rooms. You know, I, they don't cost money. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the bottom line here is that uh, it's penny wise and pound foolish for us not to have more nimble policies and, and not reflect some of the other first world countries that uh, we are, we are so related to. And, uh, Charity begins at home. We really need to take care of the health and safety of everyone who lives here. Uh, you mentioned teaching political science. So you've lived what you've taught. You know politics. You've been in the legislature. And of course, the state superintendent of public instruction. So what's the difference between living the life and teaching the life? What would you, in fact, what would you tell students now, looking back, teaching politics? What would you tell them? This is what you really need to know about politics. This is what I'd tell them. And I learned this at UC Davis a long, long time ago. The word democracy comes from two Greek words, demos and kratos. It means government by the people. But the Greeks also invented the word idiot. It meant one who does not participate in politics. The Greeks went on to say, though, that the act of working with other people, the act of participating with other people, whether it's in a political engagement or whether it's in a music ensemble or a drama production or an athletic team, is really enriching to the individual. And so that's what I, that's the, if there is a dirty little secret, it's that politics can be a lot of fun. You can meet some really amazingly wonderful people and you can uh, have, have 
an opportunity to impact the future in a very important way. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I served in the legislature and I met a lot of great people, Democrats and Republicans who cared about the future and who were good, to, good people to engage with. And uh, we got some things done. So I believe that uh, we can do that in the future. But the, but the thing we're not telling the kids is how enjoyable it is to work with people that share your values and care about tomorrow and really are willing to roll up their sleeves and make tomorrow a better place. I look back on my parents' generation, the so-called greatest generation, and I just weep with joy at what they did for us. And I want us to have that sense of, of enthusiasm and that sense of what's possible and that sense of uh, dreaming about the future that was uh, part of my childhood and part of my growing up years. We need to be, um, we need to have more dreamers running for office and, and uh, operating not only in elected offices, but in political parties and other endeavors. You know, you mentioned uh, optimism and people getting engaged. And from my perspective, it sure seems like young people and just people in general are more engaged in politics than I've ever seen at any point in my life. I mean, following the primary campaigns in 2016 and in 2020, was unlike anything in my experience. I mean, I'm 55 years old. I've been following politics since I was a little kid. And generally the average person doesn't follow the blow by blow of California primary campaigns for president or uh, you know, know anything about the Iowa caucuses, et cetera. But boy, in the last couple of races, that has really changed. And I think uh, a lot of credit to Senator Sanders for engaging young people um, and maybe even further back than that, it may have even gone back to uh, Barack Obama, but getting young people more engaged and people that seem like they have in the past not been as, as plugged into politics, getting to actually pay attention. I mean, John and I covered a story, gosh, it was a few years ago about people running for local uh, state party officials, you know, to be uh, the representative at the convention. Most people would never have had any any clue that that was going on and suddenly people are really getting into the nuts and bolts and trying to figure out what is a caucus etc so i mean does that does that match your experience do you see anything there that seems to be an awakening of interest in politics among young people well i think given to have a chance a lot of them wouldn't should, would have been more engaged and involved and some of them were i was on the board of youth and government the ymca engagement of civic engagement program that um gets kids into the Capitol where they can actually have their meetings in the assembly and the Senate chambers. They're one of the few groups that are allowed to use those chambers. And, um, but I've seen other uh, civic engagement organizations, uh, student government, I'm speaking to them in the future. I really do believe that if we give these kids half a chance, they will engage and involve and they will become uh, much more uh, democratic small d uh, not necessarily, um, and, and some, because some of the young people are actually registering as no party preference because they're not, they don't trust everybody in the Democratic Party. Having said that, to the extent that we can light a fire under them, we can improve the state and our nation and individual communities within the state. So there's a lot of um, uh, talent out there, but there's also a lot of opportunity for people to to become friends and to develop relationships with people that care. And that, that's a gift. That's one of the great gifts of life is to have uh, friends that are involved and engaged in uh, the 
decisions in our communities. And I've, I've seen it firsthand. I was in Union City for a number of years. I'm the city council there. Gosh, you know, we got the city and the school district engaged together to help the kids. And when the education system improved, the community improved. Crime rate went down 33% the first year we, we started doing this work. College, high school graduation rates went up. College attendance rates went up. Within five years, James Logan High School was the top 10 feeder for affirmative action at UC Berkeley. Some of the people who got involved in that work weren't even thinking of themselves as being politically involved. They were community involved. They were in, uh, uh, student involved. They were, um, so one of the beautiful things about this is I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to do things without even necessarily thinking it's politics. It's, uh, it's much more like um, the, the kind of work that the people that founded the country were doing. And I, I like to remind people that uh, those of us on this call, the three of us, we're actually older than the average person that founded this country. You know, think of some of those old guys. It's because it's they were wearing white wigs that we thought they were old. But, you know, not only, you know, Jefferson, when we started all this was in his early 30s. Madison and Monroe, one was a teenager and the other was in his early 20s. You know, you, you had a lot of people that were, uh, you know, in the trenches doing the work. And I hope this party and, uh, and uh, the future will be about getting the, not only the enthusiasm of the young people, but the, the energy and the optimism that comes with them. Uh, you know, I, I really do believe that part of what's missing in California and America right now is that sense of optimism. You know, it's, it's, optimism is much bigger than hope. Hope is something you do with your fingers crossed. But optimism is in a sense of what's possible and what, what we can do. And, and it's so much associated with uh, young people. I think it helps our party and our state and our country if we get the young people uh, dreaming big dreams. What about, what about the splintering of groups that we, we've seen this a long time in years past, but there does seem to be sort of a balkanization, progressives, moderate left, far left, uh, it, there seems to be separate groups wanting to form themselves rather than come to the center and sort of a big umbrella group. Do you see that as a problem? If you were to become chair of the Demo state Democratic Party, would that be something you'd have to deal with? Well, I, I think if I become chair of the state Democratic Party, I'm going to work really hard to make it a much more open process with a lot more enthusiasm. I think that the cynicism comes from a feeling there's a bunch of backdoor stuff going on that it's not open and above board, it's not inclusive, and it's not uh, uh, absolutely uh, something that we can look on with real confidence that this is being done the right way. Look at the ADEM election. A bunch of people got ballots that hadn't asked for them. And then a bunch of people that asked for them repeatedly didn't get them. This is, uh, you could argue it's bad management. I would say that's a big part of it, but it also is the kind of thing that makes people cynical. That, that you didn't ask for a ballot and you got one, that associations were able to ask on behalf of their membership, you know, that would make you crazy if they were doing that at the election and the general election. So uh, we need to be a little more, um, we need to be a lot more open as a party and we need to be a lot more um, inclusive and, uh, and transparent. Again, the backroom boys club has to end. And by the way, the last time the Democratic Party of California elected a woman 
1985. We've only elected two. We've had a couple of others appointed, but isn't that embarrassing? And so I really do think it's uh, something that we ought to have a conversation about. Let me switch gears here for a second. And uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the uh, issue involving school reopenings across the state. There does seem to be a patchwork of proposals and, and orders and suggestions, north and south, county by county, they seem to be a bit different as to when schools will reopen, actually reopen and get back. What, from your perspective, former SPI, what's your take on how this is, should best be done and what's the, is there a rollout here we can expect? Should it happen now? Do we need to delay it? Do you have any thoughts on that? We have to open the schools urgently, I would argue, starting with the, the schools for the youngest children. The, the children that are being hurt the worst are the poorest children, the youngest children, the foster children, the English learners, and the rural kids. And here, let me just tell you that when I, early on when they sent the kids home, I asked a friend of mine who's a lobbyist for LI Unified, and I said, you know, there's this assumption that these kids are doing distance learning. What percentage of your kids have no access to a computer in their home? He said, oh, in LA Unified, it's 30%. You realize that means 30% of the kids were sent home with no learning. You can't do distance learning over a computer if you don't have a computer. If I gave you the best lamp in the world with the brightest bulb in the world and you had no electricity, how would that work for you? Up in rural California, there are vast stretches of the mountains and, and even some of the other backwoods places that aren't that steep but they don't, have a, they don't have internet. They don't have access to broadband. Those kids are home, not learning, unless they have, are gifted to have parents that are college educated. And the, or, or very, my parents weren't college educated and they were good parents. They would have read to us and done some things with us, but there were things they wouldn't have felt confident to do. They wouldn't have, my, they wouldn't have felt confidence teaching science. And so at the end of the day, I'll just say to each and every one of the people on this call, the, you know, there are kids in group homes and in foster homes where they're just barely hanging on. Going to school every day is what makes their life work. It is, the, it is their, their absolute best time of the day. And if we take that away, so I would start with K3, I'd go to K4, 5, 6, and then I'd go, go up from there, but I would certainly focus on children with learning needs and disabilities and foster care kids and uh, kids that um, are learning English because they just, it isn't fair to say they're distance learning because they're really not. And even in a, even in a more affluent county like uh, San Diego, San Diego Unified has 10% of their kids that aren't online. And by the way, when I'm talking about LA Unified, I'm talking about the second biggest school district in the nation. I'm talking about a school district the size of a small state. So when 30% of those kids aren't getting anything, it's a big deal. And mm. now we've been at it a year. So, you know, line up those vaccines, start with the kids that, that I've been talking about, the teachers for the kids I've been talking about, as fast as you can. That ought to be one of the most urgent things we do is vaccinate the teachers. Is there a safety option here you have to weigh? I mean... Yeah, I mean, that's why I they go right back. But to what extent is there a danger in going back right now? I think I think we have to go back because there's a danger in not going back. Mm -hmm. 
If you don't get two years of schooling and you're seven years old, you're in deep yogurt for the rest of your life. And so it's, it's that serious. And for us to pretend like, well, we'll, we'll make it up. We'll make, we'll get over this. No, a lot of these kids won't get over it. And so we need absolutely to, to, but remember when I wanted to do class size reduction, Governor Wilson made fun of me for like eight months. He said, we weren't going to do it. We weren't going to do it. My plan was to do it over a four-year period. Finally, at the 11th hour, he says, you know, I've changed my mind. Let's do class size reduction in K3, but we'll do it in six weeks. Well, it was a little chaotic because we only had six weeks. I had to go to the portable housing vendors and ask them to put on double and triple shifts. But, you know, they did it. And we got, we didn't get all the classrooms. That's why some of the first weeks kids were going to school in the cafeteria or in the library or on the stage at a theater. But we did, in fact, get a lot of those portable classrooms installed by the first day of school. And if we right now said we're going to do a full court press to reduce class size so we can get more of these kids back to school faster, uh, we need to build some more portable classrooms and get going. We could do some of that right now. And then recruit some more teachers. We got to get um, more people that will, in fact, be the teachers and maybe in, uh, entice a few to come out of retirement for at least the short term so we can get more distance, learn, you know, more space between the kids. But this needs to be done with some sense of urgency. This, this is not, I mean, we were already under educating our kids, being 21st in per pupil spending in the most expensive state in the union. We're number one in per prisoner, mind you. So we needed, we were already behind, but now we need to absolutely ramp up and, uh, and let's stop pointing fingers and making people wrong. And let's get this right for, on behalf of the children. Do you think this is an issue that has to be resolved statewide in Sacramento, or is it an issue that the individual districts need to weigh in on? I know that's a classic debate up here, local, locals versus the state, but to get it done most efficiently seems to me an opinion that it's a state issue more than it is a local district issue. But they're on the other hand, they're the ones that actually have to do the heavy lifting and do the school. So governance wise, where do you think this should, this ultimate responsibility should fall? I think it is a mutual responsibility. I think the state has to step up first because in fact, we do have to uh, make it a priority that we get the vaccinations going to the teachers and to the school employees, the people that work in the cafeteria and the custodians and the aides and the librarians and the counselors all need to get vaccinated because that's, that's gotta become a, a, a sense of urgency has to be done about that. But then the local districts have got to figure out ways that if we can only get them back two days a week, fine, let's do that. And then we'll figure out how to make it three days and four days and five days. If we can only do uh, the littlest kids, fine but we need a strategic plan for how we're gonna get the middle school kids and finally the high school kids in. And it needs to be done about as urgently as you can do anything in this world because um, the, the, what's at stake is really the productivity of our country. Uh, California is the biggest engine in, the, in America. And if California falls on its face, then the rest of the nation will fall on its face. And, you know, and there are kids with special needs that can still make a huge contribution. I had a first cousin that had Down syndrome and, and she was older than I. So she was in school before we had the Americans with Disabilities Act. She had a marvelous mother and father and my aunt and uncle worked to help her to um, gain some skills that allowed her to work most of her adult life until she had a stroke. 
And that made her a happier, better person because of it. Yeah. And there are other kids that, that have special needs. The, the, the theory is that both Edison and Einstein may well have been special needs students. There are brilliant people. I have a friend who I was just talking to this week. She has an autistic son and he has learning issues, but he's brilliant, very high IQ, but he's got learning issues. So come on, let's get going here. This is not, this is America, California, the golden state. We can do anything when we get our, put our shoulder to the wheel and we decide we're going to do it. And we have. Speaking of optimism. Oh, (laughs) what about higher ed? You know, we talk a lot about K-12 and even, well, K-12, but what about community colleges, the UC system? We've got UC interns and we've had USC interns and CSU interns. And the last year or so, they've been working uh, remotely too. And they're like, cut off from everybody except out of their, you're working at home and doing everything like we're doing right now, Zoom, but there's no interaction with classroom professors and instructors like, which was part of the fun of education really for the older students, I think. Uh, where do they yeah. fit into all the scheme? Is there, you know, um, what's, the, what's the recipe to get them back up to normal, do you think? That too needs to be a priority. I, I would argue the littlest kids are the first, but yeah. As you get older, it becomes, it, it's absolutely critically important to who we are. And, you know, honestly, um, every child needs a great education and that's on up through college and into uh, trade school and into other areas. The fact is that we have way too kids that are not getting any education right now and uh, who are college age and are getting the very minimum. And uh, it's one of the, great joys of my life. I got to go to UC Davis and UC Santa Barbara, but it, and it was still a struggle for a working class family. My God, now it's 10 times worse. Yeah. And so we need to, we need to get the state more engaged in building more campuses. Frankly, we, we have rural remote parts of the state where I've talked to teachers in rural schools and they say, you know, we actually have a lot of talented kids that should be going to college, but the nearest community college is 120 miles over the mountain. And, you know, even if they could go in May and June and July and August, they can't go in the winter. We need to get more colleges that are closer. And if the state did, I would argue the state needs to do broadband for all and internet for all. We need to have a full court press like rural electrification was in the 1930s. We need to do that with the internet. And then we also need to uh, build more colleges in, in the more uh, uh, and more access to college in some of the more remote areas. If anything, though, we may be learning some things about college distant learning right now, because I do know a lot of students are still getting their uh, classes and, and some are a little less satisfied than others, but a lot of them still feel they're getting a, a valuable uh, opportunity to learn. And, and this, if anything, this is a wake up call for us being more nimble on how we do college education in the future and help these kids to graduate in four years too. Well, great. On that positive note, uh, Delaney Easton, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Tom Foster, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. And I'm John Howard. We'll say say goodbye and we'll see you next time around. Delaney, thanks again. Thanks a lot. Thank you both so very much. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Delaney. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN 
the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.